Um, I can tell that I have a Catholic crowd tonight. Uh, when the good thing about our separated brothers, Protestant, they tend to sit up front and close to each other. Catholics, they sit in the back and they spread out. So if you don't mind closing a little bit, it'll avoid me having to um, do some gymnastics. I'd appreciate that. I want to clarify a couple of points from last time um, because I do realize that sometimes I say something that if taken out of context could lead some, some of you to, uh, thank you, to, to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. The first point is with regards to the issue of contraception. You know that I have oftentimes reminded all of us that contraception is a moral sin just as, and it's really a form of idolatry that matches the, the, what the Hebrew, what the Hebrews, what the Israelites did in the desert when they adored the golden calf. And you know that this is something we're not supposed to do because it really separates us from the life of Christ in us. I've been harping on this, but I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying to mean that families ought to have as many children as is, not, as is physically possible. In other words, we should not fall into the, the other excess, though it may not be necessarily labeled as a sin, of providentialism. The notion that, well, okay, we'll leave it up to God and in all cases, and uh, you know, God will provide, we have nothing to do. God wants us to be sharer in his creative activity, which means, and that's you know, the teachings of the church, that for every um, marital act, there, is, there needs to be um, a prayerful state in which we put ourselves to ask God and ourselves, each other, it is that a good moment to be blessed by God. Now, we need to avoid a set of rules. Some people try to figure out, you know, okay, what are the rules? You know, almost in a Pharisaic mentality. If I make under 60,000, then I have one car and two rooms, and if the sun is high and pi divided by three, I should have 3.4 kids. Okay, then I'm holy. No, 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 it doesn't work this way. What we need to understand is that there's something called natural family planning, that if you're not familiar with, contact the diocese, the San Diego Diocese and get familiarized with what natural family planning is. You could definitely use natural family planning in a contraceptive mentality because it's worked very, very well. Okay? So then you tell me, okay, what's the difference then between using NFP and the pill or something else? Can I use NFP in a non-contraceptive manner and what does that mean? Two things. It means that number one, every time there is a conjugal act that you want to perform in an infertile period which is natural, which God has given us you're doing it with a tinge of regret if your approach to children is only to think of them as a burden and something that you kind of, you know uh, hold your breath, have a number of them to fit socially, you know, three, acceptable number, and then live have, ever happy again without any more of those kids, then you definitely have a contraceptive mentality. You don't understand the notion that a child is a blessing from God. 
So, there are situations where having another child is not the right thing to do because it could impair the health of your, your wife, I'm talking to men here, it could impact the overall life of the family, it can have consequences economically or otherwise that will make, make it be an undue burden on you. You use your reason. But if the attitude is to look upon children as nothing more than just a burden and not as a joyful sacrifice on our part, then we have work to do spiritually. You understand what I'm saying? Ultimately, ultimately, no one makes decisions for you other than you and your husband together. And together you will stand before the judgment seat of God and render account of how you have been faithful to the first command he gave all of us. Multiply, be fruitful, and fill the earth. That was given in Genesis, it was never taken away. You, get, you, get, you catch what I'm trying to say to you? So, if I say contraception is a sin, I do not imply go ahead and have 24 kids. I say you must be responsible but always be open to life. And if God sends you a child despite your thinking, you welcome the child as a gift from God. That is being a courageous witness to the truth. You get it? Clear? Alright. The second thing I wanted to clarify. I've been talking about the role of Mary and how we should go to Mary. And questions have been coming, well then, what do we do with Jesus? Does this mean we don't pray to Jesus? A couple of things. You need to put what I'm saying to you about Our Lady in the larger context of our spiritual life. You've heard me say this often, and I will repeat it again. What is the greatest prayer we can pray? What is it? Our Father. Not the Our Father, no. No, not the Hail Mary. Not the Creed. It starts with the letter M. Mass. The liturgy. There is nothing greater than the liturgy from which the church derives its life. No greater prayer is there than the liturgy. Mass. And during Mass, who do we pray to? Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, right? But the Trinity, the focus of our prayer is the Holy Trinity. So take everything I'm telling you about Mary and put it in a larger context of our entire spiritual life. The reason why I say to you, you, be, you do good to go to Our Lady, is because she will help you get to Jesus faster, quicker, and easier than you would on your own. She knows the way better than anybody else. And if you need a passage of scripture to help you, you know, go over that hurdle of, well, why do I need to go to anybody? Why don't I go just to Jesus? Listen to Paul. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is Paul speaking. If I could find Corinthians. Here we go. No, this is good. I'm sorry. Here we go. This is chapter 10. I'm going to come back to chapter 10 because it carries, it has a lot of uh, implication on Luke. But what I want to focus on is 
the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. This is Paul speaking. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the purpose of everything we do is to give glory to God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please all men in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Alright? And then he adds, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Well, with all due respect, Mr. Paul, sir, why should we be imitators of you? and that go directly to Jesus. Why didn't he say, be mediators of Christ? Why does he insert himself between Christ and us? Same question, you see it. I'm telling you, go to Mary. And the question is, why do I have to go to Mary? Why don't I go straight to Jesus? Well, here's Paul telling you, be imitators of me. Paul, as I am of Christ. Why? Because it's family. Because Paul is our great, is our older brother in the faith. Paul himself says he is, as it were, a sort of last born of Christ among all the apostles. And he is our brother who is going to teach us how to live a life that is Christian. And if we imitate him, we're imitating Christ. So that just as we see Christ, we see the Father. So when we see Paul, we see Christ. How do we know that? Well, Paul himself says it. I do not live, yet Christ lives in me. That's Paul's affirmation. He's saying, you're looking at me? You're seeing Jesus. You understand? That's our faith. It's family. I'm going to re keep repeating this. That's why we speak of the communion of the saints. Because it's one big family to which we belong. Governed by the same covenant. And now ask yourself this one simple question before we resume our study. Who could look at Jesus on the cross and say, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Could God the Father do that? No. Who's the only person who could do that? Mary. She's the only one who could do that. That is flesh of her flesh, bone of her bone. Just as Adam said this about Eve, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, the new Eve says this about the new Adam. In the Old Covenant, Eve came forth from Adam. In the New Covenant, Adam comes forth from Eve. And just as you would not separate Eve from Adam under the Old Covenant, you would not separate the New Eve from the New Adam under the New. It's family. Alright? Okay. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 1. We've been laboring through... Did we actually get to chapter 2? We've not even managed to do that. Well, this is great. Alright. So last time we, we, we took... We, we looked at 
the, the annunciation from a personal perspective. Sort of a, we stood there and we meditated on the relationship between the angel and Mary. And how Mary was not afraid of the angel's presence. Mary was troubled at what he was telling her. And we tried to understand how, what the angel Gabriel felt in looking at her when he exclaimed, Hail, full of grace. And what, this, what that meant to him, looking at Mary and giving her a title, something utterly unique in the Bible. No angelic being gave a creature, a human, a title other than in that one moment. He didn't call her by her name, he called her by the title. And that helped to understand that in, in the eyes of Gabriel, looking at Mary, he saw wonders of wonder. The masterpiece of creation before him, and he's at loss, finding words to define her. Even those words, full of grace, do not characterize Mary fully. They don't. Now what we're going to do is try and move through the rest of chapter 1 and see how far the Holy Spirit is willing to take us today. Is it safe to say that Mary never sinned when she was on earth? Not only is it safe to say that, it is required of us to believe it as Catholics. So if you're a Catholic, you are under obligation to conform your conscience to that truth which is that of the Immaculate Conception of Mary and that she never contracted either original sin or any kind of sin on earth. Absolutely. That's why she assumed That's why she, she was assumed into heaven? Um, yes, the assumption into heaven is, as you know, Mary was assumed into heaven body and soul. And by the way, she's not the only one. Who can tell me the names of two other person? Elijah. All right, Elijah is the one who very well known. There's another one. Thank you. Good. Enoch. Enoch, before the flood, Enoch was taken up into heaven. Right? There is also a very good argument that if I had time, I could show you that St. Joseph more than likely has also been assumed body and soul into heaven. And St. Thomas Aquinas makes that argument, and a number of other church fathers do make that argument. But, be it as it may, the assumption of Mary in heaven is due to the fact that death is a, as a result of sin, and the fact that our body decomposes and goes back to dust is, as you know, a curse of God after the fall. For he told Adam, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was the consequence of failing to live up to that covenant. Now in Mary, we have the perfect creature who fulfilled the covenant perfectly. And thus God did not put her under shame. Plus, she's his mom. And what would you not do for your mom? Okay? Now... In those days, verse 39, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the city of Judah. 
And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Alright, you all know the story, don't you? Let's take it first in its human, on its human level, so literally see what we have and then go back and look at it from a covenantal perspective. In those days Mary arose. The Greek word used by Saint Luke here is the same word that he uses when he describes the resurrection of Jesus and it's the same word that he uses when Paul after being stoned and it's the same Paul that is used to describe when Paul being stoned rose it's anisti anisti which is the, 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 the root verb for we, we use it for resurrection now we have to be careful to the usage here because what it indicates is that the the fact that Mary arose is not on St. Paul's, on St. Luke's part, a kind of an AFP document or a Reuters report. You know, somebody got up from his chair and then went out to the bar. Why does he say, in those days, Mary arose? Why does he say that? What does that mean? She was sitting on a chair and then suddenly she thought, okay, time to get up. And so she got up. Why? Why does he mention that? Because what he's trying to attract our attention to is that the rising of Mary is not just a purely physical thing. As you know, I'll get up and I'm leaving. It is a rising on two other levels and are very important. The first one is spiritual. Okay? So that before you conduct yourself in any given action, you rise up spiritually. And during Mass, we say it, lift up your heart to the Lord, right? Raise your thought up to the, to the Lord. The, that rousing of your soul is an act of the will that proceeds from faith. The second important one is that that same word, that same approach is used for David when he prepares to go to battle. So, the rising of Mary is also, in a sense, a declaration of war. Remember, we are in a spiritual combat against the enemy. And the enemy is not just the world. It is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And her rising is a signal that our action needs to be also put in their proper perspective, a spiritual one. So, when she's going to see to, to Elizabeth, and she's going with haste, to fulfill a duty towards her older cousin to help her in her pregnancy she figures Elizabeth is old she will need help and here she is going to help Elizabeth it signals also a change, a shift in the Old Testament it was us who went to God in his temple God dwelt in the temple and we went to visit God in the New Testament, God has entered our home. God comes to us. And who brings God to us? Mary. 
she went in the hill country of Judea remember she lives where? up in Nazareth in Galilee so she has to go down south to Judea what's in between? Samaria now let's put that in context Samaritans I told you the word Samaritan has been imposed by the, Jew, the Jews on the folks living in that area it was a derogatory term Samaritans never called themselves Samaritans they called themselves Israelites right? I've told you three key words we need to continue to distinguish don't confuse them Hebrews, Israelite and Jews don't mean the same thing Hebrews are descended of Eber the great 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 grandfather of Abraham under that big umbrella you have also Ishmael and all his descendants the Arabs they're Hebrews Israel is Jacob and the Israelites are all descendants of the twelve sons of Jacob the twelve tribes those are called Israelites and then Jews are descendants from Judah the third son of Israel therefore all Jews are Israelites and all Israelites are Hebrews but not all Hebrews are Israelites and not all Israelites are Jews and if you don't distinguish between these three you will miss most of what's going on here very important when the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel were shipped away by the Assyrians in 733 they were completely lost they were never allowed to return and over time over a period of a millennia what you ended up with was the Samaritans and the Galileans up north now the Galileans are kind of the Samaritans but they're faithful to the temple in Jerusalem which makes them even more despicable in the eyes of the Samaritan than the Jews because those are our next of kin yet they go down to Judea to those Jews who under a guy called Hyrcanus came up about 50 years before Christ was born and destroyed our temple so we have no place to go worship so when the Samaritans would see Galileans going down to worship in, in Jerusalem they were particularly harsh on them and we'll see that a little bit later that is the historical context you need to keep in mind so for Our Lady to go from Nazareth up north to Judea she has to go through Samaria and it's a dangerous journey okay. and she's pregnant in fact in one of his little stories or write-up or meditation Saint Francis Assisi stated that when Our Lady appeared before the Lord for her personal judgment one of the accusations that the devil leveled against her was the fact that she was careless because she was pregnant with the Son of God and yet went down on a dangerous journey you need to you know, our faith is an incarnate faith it happens with flesh and blood and bodies and people if you just spiritualize it as you read this and there's no context behind it you're missing the point you have a pregnant young woman a pregnant young beautiful woman going on a dangerous journey having in her womb the savior of the world you need to appreciate that why didn't she stay home 
protect the savior of the world instead of exposing him to this dangerous journey pardon? no he's not, otherwise why did he tell why did the angel tell Joseph get up, take your, the child and his mother and go to Egypt until I tell you to come back and he didn't tell him, and oh by the way your insurance policy is the child in fact, St. Joseph went down to Egypt having no clue where he's going and the child remained silent, said no word. The child was completely dependent on them just as any child would be. That's the mystery of the Incarnation. Don't, let's not, do two things we need to avoid with our Lord. Number one, turning him into just a, a child who had no clue who he was. That's not true. And number two, turning him into Superman. I know it's not what you're saying, Rose. I'm not implying that you're saying that. I'm just, you just brought that to my attention. God was completely dependent on them. I mean, our mind rebels against that notion. It, it does. It just doesn't accept it. What do you mean God is dependent on them? Well, God was dependent on them. God sat in the backseat and said, you drive. That's what it means. To carry this one step further, had Mary said no to Gabriel, had she said no, it would not be saved. That's the weight of her word. Don't think that if she had said no, God would have said, okay, missed it, alright, initiate plan B. She was it, she was the mother, she was the one whom he chose. And in her freedom, she would have said no. Realize that. Realize the, the magnitude of what it means for God to become incarnate. To be a child in the womb of a woman. Mary goes up to, to Judea in the hill country. And then she enters the house of Elizabeth. Now I want you to slow down your mind, bring it down, rub it down, and then take it in slow motion. Imagine you've seen the movie in slow motion, because it's important. We can't read Luke the way we're reading, you know, US News or Time magazine. Here are the steps. And she entered the house of Zechariah. So, you gotta imagine this. Mary opens the door, and she steps into the house. You're with me? Okay. Let me ask you a question. When Mary stepped into the house, was God substantially present in that house? He was, right? Because he was in her womb and she was in that house. You agree with me? What happened then when she stepped into the house? Did anything happen? Did the Holy Spirit come on upon Elizabeth? No. See, rub it down. You're going too fast. She's just, she stepped. Now stop the movie, look at the picture. Mary just entered the house. Anything happened? No, you're going too fast. So, I'm sorry? Jesus is in the house. God is in the house. Did anything happen? Not, no, you're going too fast. You're going too fast. What happens after? She greets Elizabeth, and then it is the greeting of Mary 
that prompts the coming of the Holy Spirit, not the presence of Jesus. Do you, do you, do you, do you see that? Jesus was no more present and no less present before or after the greeting. you agree? He was just as present before as he was after. Nothing happened when Mary stepped into the house. She stepped, nothing happened. She greeted Elizabeth. And notice Luke doesn't tell us what the greeting was because it doesn't matter. What matters is that when she greeted Elizabeth, and what do you think the greeting would be? He doesn't tell us this because we're, soon, we're supposed to know that. Do you think the reading was, Hi Elizabeth, how are you? Do you think this was the reading? What do you think the reading was? Peace. That's the greeting. A greeting of peace. And it's coming from the mother of peace. And as she speaks the word, peace comes upon the house. Shalom is not pacification, absence of conflict. Like you have sometimes when your children sit around the table and they're eating cereals and nobody's talking to nobody. That is not peace. Peace is, the, the, the best word I have for it in Lebanese is baraki. That is peace. In English it would be... Um, the overflowing of God's grace in your house among all members that is peace when Jesus says peace I give you my peace I give to you that's what he means the presence of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of all those who are there not pacification you know compromise that's what peace is. So Mary speaks the word and the Holy Spirit immediately comes down. Her spouse comes down on Elizabeth. Now, notice what Elizabeth says. To a Jew, what she says is tantamount to heresy. We're so used to the words that we don't notice it. Notice. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The babe left in her womb. That is the sanctification of St. John the Baptist in the womb of, her mother, of his mother. Of which Gabriel, what Gabriel promised to Zechariah. He told him he will be sanctified in his mother's womb. He was. Through the agency of Mary. Left in her womb. So St. John was born without original sin. He was not conceived without original sin. That's the difference. Okay. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So now that's the Holy Spirit speaking. Right? She's speaking. She's the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. She's inspired. And this is what she says. She exclaimed with a loud cry. And she could not contain herself. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Alright. Point number one. Who is younger? So, in a Middle Eastern culture, or in American culture not too long ago, if a younger 60-year-old girl goes see a 60-year-old woman, who does obeisance to who? Who shows respect? Right? Who's showing respect here? You notice that? Okay. 
Now, pay attention to what she's saying. What did she say? Again, slow down. Because we're so used to the text, we've read it so many times that, well, okay, yeah, we know what the story is, let's get on, you know. Pass me the salt, you know. Where's the ketchup? What is she saying? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Do you see something wrong in, 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 in what is being said? No. That the Holy Spirit is inspiring her so she knows. But the order. To a Jew, the order is heresy. You're putting the creature before the Creator. You normally bless God. And oh, by the way, you're also blessed. You don't go... Oh, you're blessed, and oh, by the way, God is also blessed. You see the order? Yet, it's the Holy Spirit that is inspiring her to speak. Notice what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's directing Elizabeth to whom? Jesus or Mary? The Holy Spirit. Telling Elizabeth to do what? To honor and venerate, that's what veneration is, you've got it right here in the Bible, Mary. Elizabeth is venerating Mary. How do we know that? Notice the language. And why is this granted me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. What is she saying? The 60 year old woman, so now, you know, here we are, we have no clue what's going on. We're just watching. We're, you know, we're a bunch of uh, Judeans living in Judah, and we'll be working in the field out there. And we come in to ask a little bit for a glass of water, and then we see this 60-year-old woman looking at this young girl, and she's telling her, "And why is this granted me that you visit me? Don't you see something odd here?" What is she saying when she says, why is this granted me? She's basically saying, I am not worthy that you come to me. That's what she's saying. Why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, mother of my Lord. Two meanings. Two meanings. In, in the culture of Israel, the mother of the Lord is known as the Gebira, Al-Kabira in Arabic. And who was she? She was the queen mother. The king did not make his wife the queen. Why? Because he had a bunch of them. And if you tried to make one of them the queen, she'd be dead the following day. But guess what? He had only one mother. And so she was the queen, the mother, the queen mother. That's where we get the title of Our Lady as Queen of Heaven. Not from some pagan Greek stuff. We get it from ancient Israelite traditions. Reference. <clears throat> okay, where's this my little paper here? If we turn to 
1 King, the first book of Kings, chapter 2. 1 King, chapter 2, 19 through 20. Okay. Where's chapter 2? Here we go. Verse, if I back up a little bit, one of Solomon's brother went to Bathsheba. Who is Bathsheba? Solomon's mom. Solomon has been enthroned. He's now the king. And one of the brothers went to Bathsheba and said, please ask this for me. He said, and now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, say on. And he said, pray asking Solomon. He will not refuse you. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shun, Shun, Shunammite, as my wife. But Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Now listen carefully. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Remember when I tell you that we use the four senses of scripture, the Catholic quadriga, the literal sense, and the anagogical sense, that which applies to Christ. Who does Solomon represent? Who does he point to? Who is, who is he a sign of? Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right? Bathsheba is Christ's mother. She points to Mary. What does Solomon do? He bows down before his mother. Anybody takes offense at that? Anybody takes offense at Solomon bowing, the king bowing down to before his, his mom? Why do we take offense at the notion that Jesus can bow down before his mother and not lose anything of his deity or of his majesty? Do you think that Solomon is bowing down before Bathsheba as a sign of servitude? What is it a sign of? More than respect. Love. That's it. Love, reverence, veneration. You think Jesus loves Mary? You get that? You need to enter into that mystery between Jesus and Mary. And I'll tell you this. You won't be able to force your way. You have to be invited. And the only way you can be invited is in prayer. So you can enter into the house of Nazareth. And see for yourself how Jesus treated Mary. That is a gift you can receive in prayer. And many, many humble souls who pray the rosary and who are living a very devout life know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't need to paint them a picture. Now, let's come back. Let's follow what, 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 what happens here. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. She's the most powerful person in the kingdom after her son. As far as I'm concerned, this is no church teaching. This is Mr. Me talking now. When John and James went with their mom... And she was interceding on behalf of their son, saying, you know, I just want you to put him on your right-hand side and him on your left-hand side. Take the two most powerful positions and give them to my two sons. And I'm going to be happy. 
And he says, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we are. So you will. But as to who sits on my right and my left, it is not up to me to give, but my Father is in heaven. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the one who's sitting on his right is Mary. And the one who's sitting on his left is St. Joseph. And I think it makes sense. But that's me talking. End of parenthesis. So, here is Solomon bowing before his mother. She was called the Gebira, the mother of my Lord. Alright? Let's go back to Elizabeth now. So here is Elizabeth saying to Mary, I should have kept my finger on this. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? People ask, okay, what, you know, show me where we have to show you know, veneration to Mary. Right, right, right there. You got it in the Bible. Right there. Here is Elizabeth, the 60-year-old, showing veneration and being astounded that the mother of her Lord, meaning the Gebira, but also the Theotokos, the mother of God, is coming to her. For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, not, for behold, when the presence of God was made manifest in my house, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. How does God reach us? To the voice of his mother. As simple as that. In fact, it is part of our liturgy and part of our tradition to say that every grace that comes from God to any creature on, this fa on the face of this planet, be it, be it somebody who's Catholic, non-Catholic, whatever the case may be, all the graces, all of them, without exception, flow through Mary. Not because He's forced to do it this way, but because he just loves to do it this way. Because he loves his mom. And he wants us to be like him, children of Mary. You know why? Because this probably was the best years of his life, living under a roof. With this immaculate creature who did his will perfectly. He wants the best for us. He gives us the best. His mom. Now, and blessed is, he, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She's blessing her. Constantly her. Blessing Mary. And Mary responds, how? Does she say, oh no, Elizabeth, it's nothing. Right? Or does she go and say, well, you know, I know, and it's amazing. I don't know how this happened. And none of that. What does she do? Notice Mary's reaction immediately. What does she do? She magnifies God. St. Louis the Montfort puts it this way. 
You say Mary? She says Jesus. You say Mary? She says Jesus. She magnifies the Lord. My soul, my, my, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has regarded the lowest state of His handmaiden. Now, up to this point, Mary is showing forth her humility. She recognizes that, whoa, you know, she got the jackpot. It's way beyond anything she'd ever imagined. But then she adds, For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Well, excuse you. You know, what kind of statement is that? All generations will call me blessed. Isn't that a little bit of, you know, pride? See, we have a mistaken understanding of humility. We think humility is, if somebody comes to us and says, Wow, that, that cake you cooked was awesome. We need to answer and say, Oh, no, no, it's nothing. Really. That is false humility. And it hides pride as big as the Titanic. Humility is nothing, no more than, no, no less than the knowledge of the truth as we stand before God. People will go to St. Teresa, yeah, St. Teresa, I can say that, St. Teresa of um, Calcutta and say, people call you saint. What do you say to that? And St. Teresa never said, oh no, you know, that's nothing. What I did is nothing at all. She never done that. She simply looked back and said, well, we're all called to be saints. Well, that's, the, that's the plain truth. She acknowledged what God did in her life. She never, you know, recused it or hide it. But the difference is that St. Teresa of Calcutta, whenever somebody would come to her and compliment her, and I know that firsthand because I have friends who lived with her, and guess what? They have one of her sweatshirts. Full one. Complete. Not a strand, the whole thing. Imagine that. I was visiting them once and I wore the thing for three hours nonstop. I would not let anybody get close to it. I knew that was my chance. But St. But Teresa of Calcutta, anytime somebody would say, Wow, look what you did, praise be to God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. She recognized what she was able to do, what God enabled her to do through her grace, His grace, His life and grace in her. She knew without Him she's nothing. Mary's saying the same thing. Without God I'm nothing. But I know that because of what He has done to me, notice, God has done this to her. Regardless of what happens to the rest of the world, God was happy to do this for her. Because God wanted to please her. Because God loves her. And henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Now, what does that mean to call Mary blessed? Does this mean, you know, you have our checklist of things we need to do? You know, I need to go to church. I need to say to our Father. I need to call Mary blessed. Mary, you're blessed. Is that calling Mary blessed? Is that what that means? Sort of saying, oh yeah, Mary's blessed. Alright, move on. No. Calling somebody blessed. When you say to somebody, you're blessed. What are you saying to this person? You're saying two things at the same time. Number one, 
you're acknowledging a reality by saying, God has blessed you. And number two, you're also invoking God's blessing on that person. But it's a very simple fact of recognizing what God has done and being happy about it. You're also asking God to bless this person. So for 2,000 years, we've been asking God to heap blessing upon blessing on his mother, continuously. To the point where today, to the point where, as I told you last time, Paul Pleo the 13th stated that not even Our Lady can understand the state of glory to which God had raised her. The grace that is in her, at her moment of conception, let alone at the moment of the, when she stood before the cross, the grace in her surpassed all the holiness of all the human put together and all the angels put together. At the moment of her conception. That's standard Catholic teaching, by the way. This is not me talking. It's amazing. That's what the Akatist hymns call, speak of her as being an abyss. The depth of which not even the angels can probe. And that's a very ancient hymn, by the way. The Akatist hymn, if you're not familiar with it, I strongly encourage you to be familiarized with it, because it's a beautiful hymn. A.K. Uh, A K A T H uh, Y S T or I S T. Anyhow, type something like that on Google, and Google will correct you. And then you'll be able to find the Actist hymn on on you know through Google. It's a beautiful prayer to Our Lady, and in it we notice that we can't even come to fathom the depth of her glory. We can't even understand that. And God gave her to us as a mother. Alright. Now notice, Behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. He has done great things for her. Not one thing, many things. Since she was born. And she is recognizing that. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy and on those who fear him. He has shown strength of his army. has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel. Now we can come back to the covenant. In remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his posterity forever. Alright. So now we switch from the personal to the covenantal. There's a number of things happening here. First, there is a subtle but very powerful typology going on here that St. Luke is drawing on, but he assumes we know it. So he doesn't call it out explicitly. But I'm going to show it to you. First, Mary rise and go up in the hill country of Judea. And she greets Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, and why is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Right? All right. Let's turn to 2 Samuel 6. 
The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Back a little back, a little bit of history here. The Ark of the Covenant was brought into the Promised Land with the Israelites when they entered. At one point, it was in the tabernacle, and the high priest was a name called named Eli. And Eli had two sons, um, Phineas and um, I forgot the name of his other second son now. And they were worthless. They were priests, and they were utterly worthless. Meanwhile, there is a pious, holy woman named Hannah, who was barren. And she went and prayed that God would give her a son. And she said, if you give me a son, I'll consecrate that son to you. And God did. And Hannah bore and gave birth to Samuel. And she brought Samuel back to Eli. And she said, I am consecrating my son to the Lord. He now becomes your son. Eli is a, Le is a Levite. Hannah is not. Samuel is not a Levite. He's not from the lineage of Aaron. Alright? He is taken by adoption under Eli. And at one point, there's a great battle, and the two sons of Eli are slain. The Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines, and news come to Eli, and he's told that your two sons are dead, the ark is taken. Upon hearing this, he sees with trembling, he falls on his back, and he dies. That creates a little problem for Israel. There is no high priest. Without a high priest, there is no sacrifice. Good thing Hannah's prayer was heard. Good thing Hannah consecrated Samuel. Because guess who? carries the priesthood now, a non-Levite, Samuel. Okay? You know the episode with Saul, and the demise of Saul, and all through it, all through it the, 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 um, the ark was first at the, the Philistines, and then the ark left, and came back on its own, so to speak, but it was not in Jerusalem. So now, the disjuncture, David goes out to bring the ark back. You follow me? Alright. And when they came to the thresh, threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah... Alright, David, beginning with, with chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God. Interesting enough, Baal Judah is really the Lord of Judah. Baal means Lord. Which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ayo, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. Abinadab was consecrated priest. His sons are priests, the Levites. When the ark was built, God gave very specific instructions. He said, the Levites will carry the ark. 
But should any man lay his hand on the ark, I will slay him. Now what did the ark contain? Three things. The, the Ten Commandments, the manna, and the rod of Aaron that had budded, flowered. Those were in the ark. Now you'd say, if God had said, you know, if you touch the manna, or if you touch the Ten Commandments, I will my own finger, or if you touch the, 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 the rod of the high priest, right, you're dead meat. You cannot relate to that. But what is the ark? It's a box. It's a box. It's a box of a, made of acacia wood with gold plated out in, in and out. What's up with God? And why is he so picky? Why doesn't he want us to touch the box? I mean, we're not touching the inside of the box. We're just touching the box. If you ever touch the box, you're dead. Let's keep on reading. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah, the priest, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. They had the box containing the ark on the oxen. You know an oxen, how it walks? You know those big shoulders? Right? So the ark is kind of, you know, not very stable. And they were going up to Jerusalem, it's going up, and they got to a point where the ox stumbled. So, in order to prevent the ark from falling, this priest just put his hand on it to straighten it. Isn't that a good thing? Right? I mean, you know, you don't want an ark to fall, right? But guess what? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there. Because he put forth his hand to the ark. And he died there beside the ark of God. Woo! Picky, picky God. I mean, this poor man was doing something good. He was just trying to prevent this ark from falling. And here you go. Touches the ark, zapped. Yes? Had the Philistines steal it? They won the battle. The ark was taken in battle. But how did they get it to where they wanted it to go? Oh, they put it on a cart and brought it over. You see, the ark had two long um, wooden um, okay. poles that you could carry it with. If you ever, yes, if you've ever been to the Prince of Peace Abbey, if you go into the, if you go to the Prince of Peace Abbey and you go into the little chapel where they have the tabernacle, behold the ark. Okay, that you carry it with poles, but you can't touch the box. You can touch the poles at the box. Right? Vicky God. You know what's up with God? Poor man tries to stand up, zap him. Now, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? What did Elizabeth say? How is it that the mother of my God comes to me? Where did the ark end up? Ended up at the house of Obed Edom. How long? Three months. How long did Mary stay with Elizabeth? Three months. What happened at the end of those three months while the ark was at the house of Obededon? God blessed him, meaning he had a child. What happened after three days of Mary staying with Elizabeth? John the Baptist was born. 
Do you see the typology? Remember the quad we got? You take a literal sense and you apply it analogically. Do you see, you see this? Alright, now, one more step. In, in chapter 6, if you drop to verse 16, David went back three months later and brought the ark. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, I'm sorry, um, verse 12, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obededom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obededom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced. You see this word translated in ancient danced? In the original, it is leapt. The same word used for John the Baptist. Literally leapt. See that? John the Baptist leaps for joy before Mary. David leaped for joy before the ark. Okay? So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. Incidentally, you know sometimes there are those who say um, in Matthew, Matthew says that Joseph knew Mary not until she, born, she gave birth to her firstborn and they say what well, you see, you know, he, he, they didn't have any relationship until she gave birth to her firstborn implying that after that they had a relationship. Well that word until doesn't say anything about what happens in the future. It just applies to the present. Why? Because if you drop down a little bit more to um, verse 23, you see Micah, his, the, the daughter of Saul, David's wife, saw him dance the way he did and she thought, you know, he's making, you know, he's making a fool of himself. And she told him so. And he said, I'm dancing before the Lord. I would dance even more before the Lord. Which incidentally brings me to another important point. While it is true that we have to have a personal relationship with Jesus, that expression doesn't carry really, doesn't carry the full meaning. We're not just supposed to have a personal relationship with Jesus the way I have a personal relationship with my accountant. I much rather prefer the way St. Teresa of Little Child Jesus puts it. She doesn't say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. No, does David. What she says, and what David would say is, I'm madly in love with the Lord. That's what we need to strive to. Sometimes personal relationship is too polite to my taste. Jesus is there, I'm here, we know each other, we're good. No. It's all about love. So anyhow, going back to this, and she despised him, and then, and verse 23, and Mika, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. In the Greek, it's the same word. Mika had no children until she died. And then you say, and after that she had a couple of them. Right? By the way, that argument about until was made by St. Jerome. Where he answered it completely, masterfully. He gave seven different examples where that word doesn't carry the meaning that people would say. So the argument that Mary had more children is very ancient and the answer is very ancient. It's part of the treasure of the church. We just have to dig it up. That's all. Alright, now, flip over to Revelation chapter 12.
and then we, I promise you, we'll stop after. All right. Beginning with chapter 11, verse 19, we'll read the following. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, again, put yourself in the mindset of a, an Israelite reading this. They read this, they jump. Why? Because the ark was lost. It was hidden in the hills and no one ever found it. Ever. And here's John seeing what in heaven? The ark of the covenant. Right? It's huge. Yet, what does John do? He just mentions the ark and then he goes on and saying, And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman close with the sun, with the moon under her feet. Well, wait a minute, John, wait a minute. Stop, stop, stop. stop. You're just talking about the ark. What's with this woman? Go back to the ark. What's it look like? What are they doing with it? And John would say, I'm talking to you about the ark. Not the symbol, the real one, the real thing. The thing that the box pointed to, the woman. What was in that ark? Manna? The Ten Commandments? The rod of Aaron that budded. What is the rod of Aaron? It's the rod of the priesthood. Symbolizing what? Representing what? Christ, the high priest. What are the Ten Commandments? The Word of God. Who is the Word of God? What is the manna a representation of? The Eucharist. Right? So what are all these three pointing to? What are they symbols or sacrament of? Jesus Christ. Okay, go back now. Look, where's Jesus? Inside of whom? Who is Mary then? The Ark of the Covenant. You see that? Why was it not permitted to a man to touch that box? Because God is teaching them something about his mother. She's mine and no one else's. And don't you dare open the gate that I have closed. Don't you dare close the gate that I have opened. She's the enclosed garden. She is his Eden, his paradise. That is why God in the Old Testament forbade them from touching the box. Don't you think Joseph knew of that? You bet. Do you understand why he wanted to send Mary quietly? He realized anyone who touched the ark was dead. What was he supposed to do with Mary? Moses, when the Holy Spirit came down at the end of Exodus and filled the, the, the tabernacle, the tent, to overshadow the ark. Remember I told you there's three places where the word overshadow appears in the Bible. In Genesis, when the Holy Spirit overshadows creation. In Exodus, when the Holy Spirit overshadows the ark. And in Luke, when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. 
When the Holy Spirit overshadowed that box and filled it with the glory of God, what did Moses, who spoke to God face to face, what did he have to do? What was he forced to do? Leave. He could not stand there. Even Moses was not allowed to stand there. Don't you think St. Joseph knows those things? You bet. He's looking at this. He's seeing the new Ark of the Covenant. He knows what God did with the old box. And he's thinking, Who am I that the Ark of the Lord should come to me? That's why he sends his wife silently, taking on the blame. Because if he thought that she had um, had relations with another man, him being just, just, not according to our sensitive romantic understanding of just today, just according to the law. The law that God gave them. He would have to denounce her. Otherwise he was allowing sin to enter into Israel. And he would be culpable. Instead, by sending her away silently, he's saying she, to the rest of the world, she's not good enough for me. I'm not divorcing her, I'm just sending her away. He didn't divorce her, he sent her away. And he would incur the blame. That's why the angel told him, do not fear to take Mary. Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. It's part of our liturgy. It isn't because something we invented, it's because something scripture tells us. That's the depth of Luke. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All right, you're putting all those strings together, not me, actually, St. Jerome and St. Augustine and all the fathers, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not putting anything new. This is all made up. Well, let's go back to Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to follow, finish with this. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter today. I, I, I can't. I don't have time, but I just want to read it to you and show you how Paul himself applies the same kind of typology to the Old Testament. This is what he says. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Wait a minute. So, 1 Corinthians 10. Moses, at one point, the, Hebrew, the, the Israelites are in the desert and they're thirsty, and they're murmuring against God, meaning it's open rebellion. That's murmuring. Murmuring doesn't mean, you know, God is not really telling us. That's not murmuring. Murmuring is, you know, we're done with God. You know. Goodbye. Let's go back to Egypt. That's murmuring. So, poor old Moses, who had to put up with them, goes praise to God, and God says, Strike the rock, and I will give you water. That's what Moses did. He struck the rock once. Water came out. That's the rock that Paul has in mind. Now, Paul adds, the rock followed them. Right? Just read it to you. The rock followed them. You go back, read the Old Testament from beginning to end, you will never see anywhere it said that the rock followed them. It doesn't say that anywhere. Where does Paul get it from? Oral tradition. The, old, the holy tradition that allowed, that is sort of the, the, 
the cultural context and spiritual context that allowed them to interpret scripture. That's what he's relying on to say the rock followed them. And then he adds in the same breath, for the rock was Christ. Whoa! Where does he get that from? Let me show you where. Remember I told you, why did God forbid Moses from entering the promised land? What did Moses do for him not to be able to enter the promised land? He, rock, he struck the rock twice. So, here poor old Moses. Forty years he had to put up with those people. Forty years. I mean, if you don't have devotion to Moses, you really need to start now. I'm telling you, he's a saint. This man is an absolute saint. Put up with these people. And in frustration with the second generation who committed the same sin as the first generation, when they wanted to drink, God told him, speak to the rock, and the rock will give water. Moses, being really frustrated, struck the rock twice. God said, because you did not glorify me before my people, you will not enter the, the, the promised land. Here goes God again. Picky, picky God. All that Moses did was strike the rock twice. What's this whole business about not glorifying me before my people? What's up with God? I struck the rock twice. Don't enter the Holy Land. I mean, isn't that excessive? Doesn't that sound excessive to you? Think about it. He's been putting up with them for 40 years, doing everything God told him to do. And because he struck the rock twice, zap, you don't enter the Holy Land. Why? Remember, Paul is talking about the rock, and the rock is Christ. So whom did Moses strike twice? Christ. All right. Now, look, look how Paul is applying typology. And who is the teacher of Luke? Paul. This is the school of Paul. I told you I'm convinced that the Gospel of Luke was written to Theophilus, who had studied in the school of Paul. Otherwise, none of that makes sense. There's so many assumptions here. Luke is taking so much for granted. Those folks have been taught by Paul. That's the only logical explanation. If the rock is Christ, when was Christ struck and water came out of him? On the cross, right? That water is living water. That's the water he's speaking of. Right? So the water that came out of the rock is a sacrament that points to what? Living water. The life that comes from Christ. Now, Christ was struck once on the cross. What does the priest do in Mass? Does he strike Christ again? Do we re-crucify Christ in Mass? What does the priest do? He speaks the words of consecration and water. Living water is made available to us. Get that? That is Paul. That is how Paul is reading the Old Testament. Applying the anagogical sense of scripture to what happened. You see that? You see how he's taking events that happened before and now looking at them through the lens of Christ he sees Christ in them and he sees them pointing to Christ the fulfillment of scripture and he sees them 
unraveling their mystery and their meaning in Christ. So that, as he says himself, a little bit later, now, all, now these things are warnings for us. These things happen to them, this is Paul speaking, these things happen to them as a warning, but they were written down for our instruction. Catch that? They were written down for our instruction. Who is the hour he's making reference to? Christians. Okay? So he's looking at it and then seeing the sense that applies to Christ and he's pulling it out. And he's Luke's teacher. Luke does the same. Get that? By the way, when we get to the mini-apocalypse in Luke, the end of the world deal, you will see how keeping track of the literal meaning, the anagogical meaning, wrapped together into one reading will make perfect sense. Because when Christ speaks, he's speaking simultaneously about the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. Together. And then some parts apply to the end of the world, some, some parts apply to the temple, some parts apply to both. And he doesn't have to switch between the two because to his readers and listeners, to his listeners and to readers of Luke, everybody knows that the temple is a microcosm. It's a small representation of the whole world. And whatever happens to the miniature thing will happen to the real thing. That's a given. So then Christ can speak freely of the little thing and the big thing without having to say, now I'm talking about the little thing, now I'm talking about the big thing. It's a given. We miss it. But keeping those four senses of scripture is the key to make the, you know, the, the appropriate interpretation of scripture, which is what the church does. God bless you. Now we're going to stop here. Say a word of prayer so that those of you who need to leave may do so, and then we will take some questions after. Father? Lord, we thank you tonight for those wonderful words about your mother. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. Amen. Before, before you leave, please, we like from you to... Uh, I know we have some new faces. We'd like to keep your names, if you, if you can, with uh, somebody to be in touch. And please invite you. What you heard tonight is exceptional.